You're listening to an audio sermon from Redemption Church in Olds, Alberta. It is our prayer that through this ministry, we will see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, or to let us know how we can be praying for you, visit us online at www.redemptionolds.com or send us an email at info at redemptionolds.com. Open up to Colossians chapter 3. That's where we'll spend our time this morning. Um, if you don't have a Bible or you didn't bring it with you, um, there should be one in the pew near you. Just encourage you to take that, um, use it, open it up. We want you to have God's Word in front of you. I have nothing to say. Um, I have nothing of value. Um, I come to God's Word to see what God has said, and my goal is just to say um, what He's already said. And so we want to come together um, to the text of Scripture. And if you don't have a Bible or have one at home that you can read easily, take this one. It's our gift to you. Um, We want you to have it. Um, This morning, uh, as we're making our way through the book of Colossians, um, we come to the topic of work. And it's interesting, isn't it? Um, How many phrases and sayings there are about work. Specifically, not liking work. Um, We've all heard them if not said them, uh, another day, another dollar, working for the weekend, got a case of the Mondays, TGIF, first five days after the weekend are the hardest, um, a bad day fishing is better than a good day working, uh, I owe, I owe, it's off to work I go. Um, that's our, our general, general sentiment toward work, and uh, it's a constant refrain. Uh, before I came to Olds, uh, I was working on a master's degree and at the same time uh, pouring concrete and uh, helping pay for school and feed the kids that way. And Josh, who leads worship here, was actually my supervisor then. And uh, we had a couple of rituals that we would, uh, uh, that we would do on a, a weekly basis. The first one uh, was always a race. Um, who could be the first to quote that uh, ridiculous commercial? Maybe you're familiar with it, the, the camel comes walking into the office, and he's asking everyone, uh, what day is it? You know what day it is? You know what day it is? Mike, 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 what, what day is it? What day is it? Josh, what day is it? <laughs> Come on. Hump day. <laughs> we'd get excited. We'd celebrate. Happier than a camel on hump day. Uh, we're halfway through the week. We've made it. Uh, the, the other tradition we had was a little sneakier. Um, the goal was to try to convince the other guy that you had some serious question you needed to talk. Josh, come here, I need to ask something. And then you'd start singing, I won't make you sing it. The, the ridiculous um, Friday, Friday song just to annoy uh, everyone else. Um, we made it. It's Friday. It's the end of the week. Um, weekend is here. And, and so we all do it. Uh, it's all over the place. And, and it's, it's, it's good to have time off. It's good to spend time with family. There's nothing wrong with celebrating that. Um, but I think it does reveal, uh, at least to some extent, an unhealthy bent in our society, uh, in our culture, that, that makes it an uphill battle for us as believers to try to engage work the way that Christ would have us. And so I want us to think a little more carefully about this as we come to Colossians 3. Um, we, we tend to see our jobs as a necessary evil. It's something we just have to, have to get through. It, it pays the bills. It, it, we grind it out Monday to Friday. We enjoy the weekends. We work for the, the summer holidays. Maybe if everything goes well, um, you'll get to retire someday. And, and, and so work feels like this, this interruption in our real lives. But it's an interruption at which the average person will spend 90,000 hours of their life, one-third of your life, um, Potentially, wishing you were somewhere else doing something else. As we see in Colossians, through the lens of the gospel, we're called to something higher. We're called to something more than that. We're, we're called to work in the name of the Lord. Um, look down Colossians 3, starting at verse 22, um, and we'll read all the way down to 4, chapter 1. Paul writes, Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, 
Work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is trustworthy and true, that it cuts into our hearts, convicts and challenges. God, forgive us um, for a, a shallow view of work. Help us this morning as we think through these things to see um, our jobs, our, our day-to-day uh, as something more, as we embrace that as as a way to live out this new life that is in Christ. Lord, I pray as we um, walk through this text that your word would be at work in us. God, I pray that my words would be faithful um, to your word. Lord, if there's anything that I have prepared, anything that I say that is not of you, that those words would just fall to the ground, that they would not be heard, but God, that your truth uh, would go forward. Your gospel um, would be at work transforming us this morning pray in Jesus name. Amen. So this is the the third and final pairing uh, in this household code that Paul has been laying out. Um, Verses 18 and 19 were uh, addressed to husbands and wives, 20 and 21 to to parents and children, Uh, and now 22 to 41, the largest section of the three, uh, is addressed to slaves and masters. Now, as we begin to read, um, we get about one word in, and we have to stop and do a little clarifying. What's he talking about here? The NASB, NIV, CSB, they all use the word slave. King James uses the word servant. Um, If you have an ESV, um, get this, before 2010, it says slaves. If it's after 2010, it says bondservants. So what is going on? Why is this so difficult? Why is this so complicated? Like, just give us the literal translation, right? Isn't that what we want? Just give us what the Greek says. Well, it's just not that simple. It's not that easy. Um, languages are, are, are a little more complicated than that. Um, the Old Testament, Hebrew. The New Testament, Greek. So the, the Hebrew Old Testament is avad, uh, the Greek doulos in the New Testament. Uh, both of them mean slave, kind of. The, the problem is the word slave means different things in different cultures, in different contexts, right? Language is complicated. If you go on YouTube, there's, there's actually a five-minute video clip. I'd encourage you to go find it if you're bored. Um, I don't know why, but for some reason, the BBC was interested in Bible translation. Uh, and, and there's a clip uh, of the, the ESV scholars in 2010 talking about this issue. How do we translate this word doulos? And, and they're debating it back and forth. Uh, And in that video, Wayne Grudem, who's one of the scholars that worked on the ESV translation, kind of summarizes the issue and pointing out that when when those of us in North America hear the word slave, it's irredeemably connected to the slavery of the American South. That's that's where our minds go. It's, It's shifted and changed by that in ways that we don't even recognize, a slavery that was rooted in race that was propagated by stealing and selling human beings. Um, It was a a permanent slavery. It was your life, and and people were treated as subhuman. That's a horrible, wicked thing. When the Bible uses the word slave, it doesn't have that in view. It, It doesn't have the American South in view. That hadn't happened yet. If we begin, actually, back in the Old Testament, we see something very different. The people of Israel had laws from God defining a kind of slavery that was acceptable. Now, slavery was never the ideal, right? I mean, the Garden of Eden had no need for this. But, but if we go through the Old Testament and we look at God's law, there's a particular kind of slavery there that God had said, hey, this is the way it's going to work. 
Certainly not selling people who had been kidnapped from their homes. Uh, Exodus 21.16, that was punishable by death. Okay, big deal, not happening. And it wasn't based on race. It was an economic reality. If I had a rough year and my crops didn't grow, and I couldn't feed my family, there's no other option. I got to go into debt. I have to borrow from some other richer, bigger farmer, and, and, and he would supply for my basic needs, but now I owe him. And if that happened a couple years in a row, I've dug myself into a hole from which I can't get out. And so I could, by my own volition, give myself to him as a slave to pay that debt off. I have no money. I'm growing just barely enough crop to feed my family. If I'm lucky, how can I pay you back? Well, I can come and work on your farm. But the slave owner then um, was not only to pay me, but to care for me, feed me, protect me. I was also to be treated like one of the family. Very clear, the slaves were to have the Sabbath and to celebrate the feasts and the festivals together with the family. And, and the slavery uh, had a maximum limit of six years. That's how long you can demand me work to pay you back. And at the end of that six years, you don't just send him packing, um, you send him out loaded. You send him out with, um, with gifts and resources out of your flock and out of your crop and out of your fruit. And so the slave has now paid off his debt and he leaves with food for his family and the beginnings of his own farm to start fresh. So that's a very different thing. And to, to push that in a little further, Deuteronomy 23, uh, 15 and 16 gives a very interesting insight into Old Testament slavery. If the slave ran away from his master, took off, run away to hide, and he, and he came to your home, you would expect the law to say, send him back. He has a debt to pay. He belongs to that man until his service is fulfilled, but it doesn't. The law was on the side of the runaway slave. The law says that you are to take him in, and help him and care for him and help him get set up somewhere that he wants to be set up. If your master was a bad enough guy that you didn't want to be there anymore, you wanted to run away, um, the law was on your side. You were not to be sent back. And so if we're looking at a world before any, any government welfare, any social programs, this is their financial safety net. And, and, it, and it uses the word slave. You can see this is a very different thing that we're talking about. Now, certainly by the time we come to the New Testament, we're, we're no longer talking about the people of Israel and their God-ordained nation under the law of God. Um, we're looking at the Greeks and the Romans, and we have a very different system. Um, there were two types of slaves in Paul's day in the Roman world. Um, there were kind of the industrial, agricultural slaves, and, and there were the domestic slaves. Now, those, those kind of industrial agricultural labor slaves, um, that was a rough gig. That was tough. Um, most of them uh, would have been prisoners of war uh, or possibly convicted criminals, and they would be treated poorly. Um, and most likely, almost inevitably, they were slaves for life. That was their lot. Um, the domestic slaves, on the other hand, um, would have been a much higher quality of life. Um, these would have been those who had financial debts to pay uh, and, and who had then given themselves into slavery in that way uh, or maybe were born in the household uh, as children of slaves. And, and so these would be the, the financial manager, the housekeeper, the cook, the nanny, things like that. Uh, and it was quite frequent that these slaves would in fact earn their way out of slavery. Um, but according to the Roman system, um, in Roman culture, they were considered just property of the master, uh, and it is estimated about one-third of the Roman population um, was of that slave class. So that's the slavery that Paul is addressing in Colossae. And, and on one hand, you say, okay, so it's no surprise that he's addressing the slaves. There, there would have been many of them, a third of your church, maybe more if we think of the, the church growing in the early days. But what does seem to come to a surprise, uh, as a surprise to many, however, uh, is that Paul doesn't just ab abolish slavery. Like He doesn't come in and say, that's it, this is done. 
Now, this was not what God instituted or condoned in any way. And, and yet Paul tells the slaves, hey, obey your masters. What's he doing? Why would he make this command? Why would he address this issue and not blow the lid off it? Like, does he not know that slavery is evil and he's going to get himself canceled here? And it's true, Paul does not start a revolution. He doesn't declare all slaves free. But that doesn't mean he condones it. It doesn't mean that he approves of it. It doesn't mean the the Bible says slavery is a good thing. Paul is simply addressing the world as it is. This was a reality. It's not what it should be. It's not good. But there are slaves in our church who are believers who want to know, how do I honor the Lord in this? What do I do in this less than ideal situation? And at the same time, if you look closely, um, so Ephesians 5 and 6 very much parallel this section of Colossians 3. Um, and, and in both cases, there's a, a very distinct shift that happens. Paul moves from husbands and wives to parents and children down into slaves and masters. Um, it's different. Husbands and wives are to live out this relationship that, that he shows is, is rooted in creation and puts the gospel of Jesus Christ on display. Um, children obey their parents. For this pleases the Lord and he ties it in with the, the Ten Commandments. He shows this is what God designed and what God has orchestrated. Uh, but then as he addresses slaves and masters, in both cases, look at it. It says, um, obey your earthly masters, your masters according to the flesh. He undercuts it right away. He shows this is something different. This is less than God's ideal. And he reminds them, even here, that, that their true master is Christ, who is in heaven. And he goes on to say, you slaves, you have an inheritance in the Lord. Slaves didn't get an inheritance. That wasn't part of being a slave. That was a household thing. He says, hey, you're part of the household in Christ. He goes on to call the masters to account, saying, you are also responsible to your master, i.e., you, master, are also a slave, and there is no partiality with God. And so, yes, Paul stops short of inciting a rebellion. He's not turning over the whole social structure. And yet this gospel that he proclaims does radically transform and ultimately undermine the reality of slavery among those who receive it. But even so, it's striking to me, Paul uses even slavery um, this, as, as a sphere in which Christians are to live out their faith. Now, I want to just pause there for a moment as we talk about this broad word slavery and, and just recognize there is an ongoing slavery today um, that is rooted in stealing children, that is filled with and founded on abuse and sexual morality. Um, don't hear me diminishing that. That's a whole different thing. That is a wicked and abhorrent thing. And, and so I know some of you are passionate about that. I'm, I'm not including that in here. Um, but, but as Paul talks about kind of the, the everyday norm of slavery in his day, um, he says, honor your master. Live out your Christian life in this less than ideal situation. So putting this verse into context, you remember um, back to verse 17, this was kind of the, the spark that ignited this whole household code thing. Um, Paul says this is what it means to be a Christian in light of all that he's just said about, about the death of Christ on our behalf and rescuing us out of our sin. He says, whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I was dead in my sin. I was a slave to sin. Jesus, by his work on the cross, rescued me out of the, the penalty that I deserve, rescued me out of the slavery to sin, and now my life is his. So what does that look like? How do I live that out? And, and so he's showing this is what it means to live for Christ as a, as a husband and wife and as children and parents and then now as slaves. And masters, how do we live out this gospel-transformed life, not only in the, the good and, and God-ordained parts of life, but right down into the messy brokenness of this world? 
a Christian is to live a transformed life as an act of worship, even within the relationship of slave and master. So, is God in favor of slavery? No. But a Christian slave can still honor the Lord within and under that ungodly system. Now, to my knowledge, we don't have any slaves or slave owners here today. Um, but I think this is a pretty smooth transition as we look at these verses. Um, if this kind of conduct is called for, for, for slaves and masters, a far less than ideal, far more broken system, a system much further from what God intended, then certainly this principle can be brought into action uh, in our own slightly less broken, slightly less problematic world of employees and employers. As we think about how to live for Christ, how to, how to give ourselves completely in, in service to him, um, we have to take a, a close and careful look at one of the most mundane and often overlooked parts of our lives, our, our just everyday job. Paul first addresses the slaves, and in our case, the employee, and his first admonition is that we live the new life at work, when we work with sincerity. Work with sincerity. That, that is, at long last, point number one. Don't worry, the rest of the sermon will be proportionate. I hope you brought your lunch. Um, work with sincerity. Look at verse 22. He says, Bond servants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, Fearing the Lord. So slaves were to obey their earthly masters in everything. Do you have a job this morning? Do you have a boss over you come Monday? Jesus says, do your job. Obey your boss. Honor your employer. And, but then he presses a little further in. It's about the heart. It, it's not enough to just do the job. If this is to be an act of worship, if it's going to honor the Lord, it, it has to come from the internal. It has to come from the heart. It has to be done with sincerity. Paul says, not by way of eye service as a people pleaser. There's the, the opposite of sincerity. Um, the word eye service there is kind of a made-up word, or more accurately, it's, it's two words just kind of smashed together. Um, but it gets the point across when you go to work. Are you working hard just while people are watching? Is your effort and, and diligence at work done when your boss's eye is on you to make sure he thinks you're a hard worker, but the moment he looks away, the moment he's gone, oh man, you know, alt-tab, Facebook comes back. Um, your, your motivation is the hope of being seen by other people and therefore to get a, a raise or a promotion, to get a pat on the back, Paul says, don't let that be what drives you. Don't let your work be done for the eye, for the, for the applause of men. And he gives the opposite then. Instead, do it with sincerity. A sincere heart. A, a heart that is singularly focused. So Paul sees eye service, people pleasing as a, a divided heart. It's, it's mixed motives. Why are you working? It's not sincere. It's not fully honest if you're working just for people to see you. But then notice the end there, stemming out of a fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord drives us to something different. Uh, respecting him, understanding who God is as our creator, understanding who Christ is as our redeemer and living for him um, should produce work that is done with sincerity, with a single heart, not divided motives, but, but united motives. And, and I think the place to start with that is doing the work in front of you, not so that someone might see or just kind of doing just barely enough to get by, but doing it for the value that's in it, right? When we think of our jobs as a necessary evil or or is just paying the bills, that doesn't honor the Lord. Now, it honors the Lord to pay your bills. It honors the Lord to, to feed your family. Um, 
But that can't be our only motivation here. We forget that we were created to work. Work is an essential part of who we are as as human beings created in the image of God. And so the Garden of Eden, before the fall, before sin, Genesis 1.28, as God and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then just a little further down, Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. That's his job. Before sin, in the garden, work it, keep it, subdue it, bring order and, and structure and and, 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 and beauty out of it. Work. This, this creative, organizing, structuring, serving work is, is part of what it means to be human. And that, that doesn't go away. After redemption, after the re- return of Christ into eternity, we see, we see people at work. We see jobs. We see things to do. Work is an essential part of what it means to be human. It's a good thing. Now, the fall and sin brought in futility, brought in frustration and, and tension and pain and struggle in work. Those aren't necessarily good, but, but work itself is. Now, there are a few kind of notable, immoral exceptions, and we'll just kind of put those aside. Um, but, but aside from that, every job, every job plays some role in filling, subduing, having dominion over this world, in working and keeping this planet that's been entrusted to us. And so when you look at your job uh, in the fear of the Lord, understanding who God is, uh, keeping him in his rightful place, we ought to see the, the intrinsic value of my job, of what I'm doing. In what way are you bringing structure and order to the world? What, what service are you providing? What, what value are you adding to this world and, and to people's lives? If you're a, a mechanic, fix vehicles well. Subdue that broken engine. Figure it out. Make it work again. Bring it back to life. Bring structure and, and order and, and giving a family a, a vehicle that works that they can trust. There's value in that. If you're a farmer, Plan and, and plant and, and fertilize and do whatever it is you're able to do to, to make the best of the land that you have to grow a crop that, that feeds people. You're a waiter, a waitress. Work hard to, to give people a, a pleasant experience. To help them enjoy their evening because, because there's value in that. There's beauty in that. You're a salesman. You're not just trying to fill a quota. You're not just trying to move product. You're trying to help people find what will genuinely work for them and serve them well. If you're a builder, cut it straight. Make it square. Build it well. Build something that will last and and be of value to to the people that you're building it for. Work with sincerity. Look for the, the essential value that's in your job And do your job not just when people are watching, not just to get through the day or to get a promotion or to pay the bills, but with with sincerity. Out of the the fear of the Lord, seeing the value that is in what you're doing. So do everything in the name of the Lord. The, The new life at work means working with sincerity. Secondly then, not only are we to work with sincerity, but we're to work for eternity. The fear of the Lord and our work for the value that's in it is is motivated not by the eyes of men, but with an eye to eternity. We're looking to the rewards that that only the Lord can offer. So look again, verses 23 to 25. Paul writes, Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, Knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong that he has done, and there is no partiality. So again, he starts 
Whatever you do, he's, he's pointing us back. He's reminding us of verse 17. Whatever you do in word or in deed, do it all uh, in the name of the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily. Um, literally, the word there is from the soul. It's, it's, again, this idea of sincerity. But what's the direction of the heart? As we're working from the heart, what is it that, that captures our heart? What is it that, that really drives us? Well, there's only one thing that is supposed to capture our hearts, right? We're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, not most of it. And so how do we obey this command? Well, at the same time, um, working with sincerity, putting our heart into our work and serving the Lord with all of our heart. We only do that if we can bring those two things into line. And that's exactly what Paul is saying. Not for man, but for the Lord. We ought to work for or with our eyes and our hopes set on, on eternity, on the Lord and on his reward. Now, I found in the past this tends to make some people a little bit uncomfortable. Paul says, work heartily for the Lord. And then he explains in verse 24, knowing that from the Lord you'll receive a reward. And we tend to want to separate those things. We want to say either... You're doing it for the Lord in some selfless way to get nothing in return, or you're working for a reward. You're looking for the prize, and, and you can't do both. It's one or the other. Now, I, I, could, I could try to philosophically knit those together, but I think the simpler thing to do is just say, look at the verse. Look at this text. Paul doesn't separate them. He does not say you can serve selflessly or seek the reward, um, but you can't do both. No, he says... We have to do them together. He says the way that you serve the Lord from the heart is by knowing that it's the Lord who rewards. He will reward. And we are to seek it. Remember, the, the alternative is eye service and, and people pleasing. And if that's your goal, um, you, you won't earn the reward from the Lord. Um, you'll get your reward here and now. Right? That's Matthew 6, 1. Be aware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. You're, you're seeking after that earthly human reward. Uh, sure, you might get it, but you won't get anything from God. You, you've got your reward. You got what you were after. If, however, you're working for eternity and for the Lord, seeking His reward, sure, you, you might receive earthly rewards along the way. Your, your hard work and diligence might be noticed, but that's not your goal. Your goal is the reward that only the Lord can give. And in that, your work becomes worship. You're doing it in the name of the Lord, not, not just for a measly paycheck or a pat on the back, but, but because it honors the Lord and because he rewards those who serve him. Serving the Lord and seeking his reward are one and the same. That's the very definition of faith that, that we see, Hebrews eleven six. Listen, without faith, it is impossible to please him, to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must, one, believe that he exists, and two, that he rewards those who seek him. Do you believe that the Lord exists, and do you, do you believe that he rewards those who seek him? And do you live that way? Do you believe that, that your day of work can be so much more than just another day, another dollar, so much more than just working for the weekend. It can actually be done. It, it should be done knowing the Lord will reward those who work at their job with sincerity, working for eternity. That perspective is so freeing, so freeing. Listen, there is no perfect job. There are no perfect employers. Stop looking. Um, you will always be doing things that go unappreciated, unnoticed. You will lack proper pay or bonuses or benefits that, that, that maybe are rightly deserved to you. You will not be respected fully. Um, it's easy to get frustrated and want to ask, why? Why should I work hard for him? He is not fair. He's not kind. He doesn't treat us well. Um, it's going unnoticed. Um, if he's not going to give me what I deserve, I am not busting my hump for him. Not going to do it. Not worth it. 
I'm just going to put in my minimum time and I'm going to be distracted as I can because that's what he deserves. Well, verse 24 ends with the reminder. No, as we're working with sincerity for eternity, we're serving the Lord Christ. He's our master. He's our true boss. That's the one we're trying to please. The Lord, Jesus Christ, is our boss. The one who sees everything completely. The one who rewards everything perfectly. Every service, every sacrifice. Verse 25 then gives the the flip side of that equation. Not only does the Lord reward those who serve him, work sincerely and and heartily for him. But part of working for eternity is realizing he also punishes the wrongdoer. And with him, there's no partiality. This passage sits now right at the crux between uh, speaking to slaves and speaking to masters, and that's because it it kind of applies to both. Are you burdened under an unfair, wicked boss? Take heart. Not only does the Lord pay the reward to the righteous, and you will be rewarded for every good, faithful, sincere hour of work you put in, but the wrongdoer will also be paid back for his wrong. And this this would have been a huge statement in Paul's day. He says there is no partiality. Um, Literally, the, the word there is there's no lifting of the face. And so in Roman culture... Um, slaves had nothing. They, they, had, they, they were not counted as people under the law. They had no protections. Um, they were property. On the contrary, slave owners were, were highly respected and, and honored and, and rarely questioned. And so if a master had an accusation against his slave, sure. I mean, then he'll be punished. No questions asked. No, there's no trial. Um, the, the master does what he wants with his slave. And if a slave had an accusation against his master, who cares? He's property. He doesn't have a voice. He doesn't have anything to say. The law doesn't care. Not with the Lord. With the Lord, there's no lifting of the face. He's not going along to to see who is it now that I'm judging for. Is he a slave or a slave owner? No, that doesn't matter. There's no partiality. He is a fair judge with no regard to earthly position. 2 Corinthians 5, 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. The Lord will judge. Peter says this to uh, the servants, 1 Peter 2, 18-23. It's too long to go on the screen. Just listen. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For it is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Are you treated unfairly? Are you reviled at work? Are you taken advantage of at work? So was Christ. He was reviled. He was taken advantage of. He was trampled over. And he's now the judge. So you can honor him in serving, even under an unjust master, still honoring and obeying even a cruel and unreasonable boss, looking to eternity, entrusting that God will judge justly. This will be worked out. This is not the final word here on earth. It doesn't end here. There's a judgment coming. Now, that's not to say you can't or even shouldn't just change jobs, right? 
even to the slaves. Um, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 7, 21, um, were you a bondservant when you were called? Don't be concerned about it. That's okay. You can be a Christian slave. That's all right. But then he goes on to say, but if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. So you can serve the Lord as a slave, but hey, if you can get your freedom, you can get a different job, a better job, go for it. That's, that's fine. There's no inherent value in, in willfully staying in a bad situation. But maybe you are stuck. Maybe this is your only option or your only option for now. But the Lord will judge. And no situation is perfect. No job is, is all roses. But every good deed, every sincere hour of work will be fully rewarded. And every bad deed, every unjust thing will be punished. So to the slaves, to the employees this morning, Christ calls us to, to live for him. To serve him, not, not just at church on Sunday morning. Right? Not just a, a summer's missions trip. That, that's, that, those are not the only places that we serve the Lord, um, but right into the midst of our day-to-day grind of your job. We so easily compartmentalize our lives, right? Sunday is the Lord's day. That's where we go and worship. But Monday to Friday, that's something else. Or we, or we draw lines between different jobs. I mean, I'm no pastor. I'm not a missionary. I just have a regular job. A secular job. Listen to the words of William Perkins, a Puritan uh, who was fighting against this very thing back in the 1500s. Perkins wrote, The action of a shepherd keeping his sheep, performed as it should be, is as good a work before God as the action of a judge in giving a sentence, or a magistrate in ruling, or a minister in preaching. Thus we see there is good reason to search how every man is to use his own calling. A good day's work with a sincere heart honoring the Lord, digging a ditch, honors him. The same way a good day serving the Lord, working on a sermon. It's not mundane. It's not secular. Our lives have been pulled out of the secular. We're to serve him with our bodies. When it's done properly, with sincerity of heart, seeking the reward of the Lord as this spiritual act of worship, God sees it as such. It's an essential piece of what it means to be uh, living this new life in Christ, doing everything in the name of the Lord. And as true as that is for the slave and the employee, it's also true for the master, the employer. And, and so to the master, Paul turns next, looking at, at chapter 4, verse 1. Um, This is to the employers, the bosses, the business owners here. Paul says to you, um, lead with humility. Lead with humility. Read chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Paul doesn't say nearly as much here. And and I think partly because... um, Everything he's just said to the employees, to the slaves, also implies to the employers. It also works to the business owners, right? Uh, If that's you this morning, I suspect you felt that. I hope you did. You can also do your work, managing a company, leading and managing people, helping people grow in their roles, finding the best places and ways to, to, to use people's strengths to help them flourish in their job. You can do all of that with sincerity and an eye toward eternity, just like those who work under you. You can do it looking to God's reward, even when your employees don't appreciate it. But Paul has an added word then to the employers. To be a boss, an employer, a manager in the name of the Lord means providing two things, justice and fairness. You're to treat those under you with justice. This is a legal term here. You're to treat them according to what is righteous, what is right in the eyes of the law. Don't deprive them of their rights in the workplace. Know the labor laws. Know what you're required to to offer. Um, I know it's a political hot-button word these days, but justice belongs here. 
The Christian employer uh, is to provide for his employees what is just, what is right. Don't, don't cut corners. Don't overlook an unsafe work environment. Don't, don't demand uh, what the law says is not yours to demand. And don't withhold what you should be providing. Treat your employees justly. And not only with justice, but then Paul says with fairness. Um, the word here carries the idea of equality, um, but I think specifically um, speaking of that which is equal to the work that they produce, right? Don't be stingy. Don't be cheap. Don't demand extra work without extra pay. Treat your employees fairly. And that justice and fairness uh, are kind of the practical outworkings of a Christ-centered humility. That's where it starts. That's the root of this. The Christian master should have a radically different worldview than the unbelieving boss. The unbeliever is the authority, right? I'm the boss. Buck stops with me. This is my house, my farm, my business. I'm the authority. The slave was his property. He was accountable to no one. He would do as he pleased. But the the Christian master was to recognize that he also had a master over him. That changes everything. The master, the Lord in heaven. And so this earthly relationship still remained, right? There's there's still slave and master, employee and employer, but that relationship is, is changed. Over and above that, they are both slaves of one master, the great master, Jesus Christ. The master in heaven who's over all things. And so they too are to live as faithful slaves to him. And that should transform the way that we, that we run our business, that we lead those under us and provide for them. Fantastic example, the mid-1700s. Um, the industrial revolution was just coming online. Working conditions were about to hit their worst, darkest days. Um, a decade known as the gin craze brought about just a drunken mess through Ireland and particularly in Dublin. And in the midst of that, a young entrepreneur named Arthur um, was sitting in the pew, listening intently as Charles Wesley addressed the, the curious crowd. Wesley famously pressed those who had wealth and influence. He would say, earn all you can, save all you can, give all you he believed and he, he preached frequently, your wealth is evidence of a calling from God, so use your abundance for the good of mankind. So Arthur, this 27-year-old, uh, had 100 British pounds bequeathed to him, uh, and he did what any good Christian man would do. Uh, he started a brewery. He's the first young, restless, reform hipster. Look at that. Um, now, if a Christian brewery makes you uncomfortable. You've got to understand the context. Um, The water was often uh, contaminated and not safe. Uh, And so the alternative was gin, and people were getting drunk all the time. And and so beer was a lesser alcohol. He's he's brewing beer so that people don't get drunk, so you can be hydrated in a safe way. Um, But Arthur didn't stop there. His company grew rapidly. Um, He was incredibly successful. And with his wealth, he funded the first Sunday schools across Ireland. Um, Large amounts were just given to the poor. Um, He supported a hospital that served the poor without fee. But some of the most influential work happened in the way that he ran his company, the way that he ran his business in the fear of the Lord. Other employees, again, we're coming into the Industrial Revolution. It is 16-hour days. It is no breaks. It is not safe. There's no such thing as weekends, um, no holidays. Wages are just barely covering the cost of living. Arthur paid upwards of 20% above average. He provided for his workers free health care, free dental care in-house, not just for the workers but for their families. They had a dining room and a cafeteria um, that had free meals, breakfast, lunch, and supper for the entire families. Um, They built cabins 
out in the country and encouraged uh, every employee to take their family uh, on vacation annually out to the cabins. Everything's covered. The workers' children had tuition covered at the Dublin Technical School. Um, A full pension was guaranteed not only for the life of the worker, but for the life of his wife. And of course, every employee was entitled to a daily allotment of two pints of freshly poured Guinness beer. Arthur Guinness, um, who knew, lived out his faith, honored the Lord in culturally radical ways, providing not only what was just and fair, but but abundant generosity um, for those under him in in a way that that changed the, the way we do business. Arthur Guinness lived out the reality of a new life in Christ as a boss. His business was not about the bottom dollar. It wasn't about squeezing the most out of his employees. It was about serving the Lord and and being generous and serving those under him. Do we see our businesses, your company, your job, as more than just a financial reality, more than just a way to pay the bills, but as a spiritual act of worship that will be rewarded, that the Lord sees and honors. Do you live? Do you work? Do you do whatever you do in word or in deed, day in and day out, right down to the most mundane parts of our lives in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, with your eyes fixed on honoring him and the reward that he has into eternity? Would you pray with me? Father, forgive us. We so easily see the mundane things of this life as mundane, as unnoticed by you. We so easily look down on our day-to-day work as just a necessary evil, just something to get through. God, would you help us? through the lens of the the gospel in standing in in awe and wonder of this Christ who has rescued us from sin, who has given us so much more than we deserve, to whom we now owe our entire lives to live out every day, every moment with sincerity of heart, with our eye set on eternity, that you might be honored in seeking the reward that only you can offer in eternity. God, we praise you for your goodness toward us. Help us, help us to see you for who you are as the giver of life, that we might worship you, um, not just with our words, but in everything we do. We pray in Jesus' name.